Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? My Jungian therapist said to me that this breakdown was the best thing that had ever happened to me. If you haven't been keelhauled by life, then you're not living. Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. But now, the sun aches over the tree line. This thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. Speaking lines gleaned from a dark and no-mooned night when only my pen knew its way. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Welcome to episode 27 of the Anxious Poets podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am, I think, one of many anxious poets. And why do I say that? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think in order to try and write poetry, to dedicate yourself to writing poetry and keeping at it, you have to be prepared to face the sensitivity that creates anxiety. Anxiety, in my experience, is that sense that there's all kinds of possibilities, there are things going wrong, or you feel a sense of dread. You worry about life. Things are disturbing to you. And... Okay, in generalised anxiety disorder, that gets out of kilter. But it's often got its roots in trauma or, or difficult experiences. And I think the poetic imagination tries not to run away from that. And that what was what helped me, was to not run away, but to enter into it. To go through a night sea journey, if you like. And that's what the book was about trying to look that journey in the face and it's there's been a bit of a gap since I did the last uh, podcast which was at Christmas I did that series of of three podcasts in autumn maybe I exhausted myself and then the Christmas podcast but there are reasons why there's been a bit of a gap which I will talk a little bit about in a minute Um, but this sensitivity this willingness to to feel life and face the thousand shocks that flesh is heir to, as Hamlet says, is is not an easy thing to do. I think the writing of poetry is not an easy thing to do. Even the reading of it, it's not the most popular medium in the world, I realise. Um, and to write good poetry uh, is even harder and 
you know, I think all of us who try and write poetry, every so often you think you might have just touched on what might be a good piece um, or a piece that got some way down the road to it, it opening up that sensitivity that you're experiencing. So I think anxiety is the price you pay for sensitivity. Um, and so I want to read a piece that will start to explore um, what this podcast is going to be about. Uh, that, that sensitivity, that uh, willingness to face things. It's called Initiation. And in my life, I've done a lot of work with men about male initiation. I've talked a lot with women about female initiation. And by that, I just mean the things that create that sensitivity that you are going through a, a change, a transformation, a life passage from one part of your life to another. And quite often they're difficult things that spark these passages. <clears throat> and I think people in the, what some people call the First Nation cultures or primal cultures, the sort of cultures that the great psychologist Jung studied, or Mercier Eliard, a great anthropologist, wrote about in Rites and Symbols of Initiation. Those, those were marked with ritual and solemnity and power um, and attention and ceremony in, in a lot of cultures. And we've lost some of that. Um, and, and a lot of the work that I've tried to do is, is, is somehow trying to rescue some of that or reinstate it or reinvigorate it. Anyway, this poem is called Initiation and it's about my son, Tom. Initiation. The hug you gave me in that first moment of diagnosis was vice-like, sobrack. Type 1 diabetes at 16, a hammer blow and a terrible fear realised in the time it takes to go in and out of the surgery door. Now you prick your fingers every day, that sharp droplet touched the blue strip, a trill pronouncing the amount of sugar sweetening your blood. Then the second wound, insulin in, to the flesh of your stomach, a place I once made raspberries with my lips to make you laugh. Initiation, the ancient art of wounding the boy, teaching him that his bleeding could become a place of wisdom, that he needed to learn to weep out loud, to wield his newfound strength in the service of something larger, that he was part of a greater story. What kind of a dad do you need now? One who has done his own bleeding, who is not frightened by his own shadow, who can call time on his own ego. A man ready to start the next chapter called Your Story, an ongoing narrative that he will leave before it ends. But son, in the time we have left, can we embrace again like on that day? Connected as men, sharing our pain, at sea on a strange ocean, initiated by all this unasked for suffering. Distinct your journey, not mine, yet for a time in the same boat. Carried by the true tide of courage to assure I want to reach first and wait for you to join me. Carried by the true tide of courage to assure I want to reach first 
and wait for you to join me. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Tom, my son, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at 16, as the poem says. And one of the things that strikes me when I think back at that time, he's now 27, was just how much support he got. So once the GP had diagnosed it and sent him straight to the hospital, a whole team gathered round him. Ironically, the name of the consultant that looked after him was Adrian Scott, the same as mine, and he had a son called Tom. There was just this weird mirroring going on, a sort of weird, strange synchronicity. But after he was diagnosed, then he would have to see the consultant uh, about every two to three months. He had a specialist nurse who looked after him, um, who he could phone any time, who sometimes came to the house. Uh, it was someone I knew through spiritual direction, weirdly. Um, she was also a priest. Um, she was a, uh, a non-stipendary Anglican priest who, who worked in the health service as well. Um, he was sent on a course for young adults that had been diagnosed with diabetes. There was just a whole uh, infrastructure of support around him and around us as well. <clears throat> Um, and when he got into trouble, which he did, because at 16, that's a very difficult time to get diabetes. It's when you just want to start spreading your wings and suddenly you can't do some of the things you want to do. Uh, a few years into his his time as a diabetic, he he just completely got lost and stopped taking insulin for a couple of days and got seriously ill it was at new year and and we ended up in um in the northern general hospital in sheffield he was in what they call dka diabetic ketonic acidosis which is really really dangerous he was just on the edge of organ failure and it gave him a big shock and i was right in the middle of my breakdown at the time agoraphobic as hell and um I remember having to visit him in the hospital, having to go with him to uh, A&E. And it broke something in me, I think, about that that poem talks about. Um, that that I had to, to get over myself um, in order to reach out to, to the next generation to, to make it his story, not, not my story. Uh, and that they were very powerful initiatory experiences for both of us. We were both going through a, a transformation. And and then Tom went on to do a young men's rites of passage. Much to my surprise, his mother suggested it to him. And uh, <clears throat> we had devised this set of rites and rituals for young men. And he went on it. And he was he was not in a great place at the time, experimenting with all kinds of modern chemistry um, as well as being on uh, medication for depression. Um, and that experience that he had on this six-day event that was almost subliminal, I don't think he really grasped the principles of what was going on or a lot of what was said to him. But he did get something deep within himself and he had a dream 
about my dad on the night that they get sent out to do a, like a vigil all night, like a vision quest. He dreamt that he was in the hold of the ship that my dad was in when he was sunk. I'll speak more about this in a little while. And that my dad showed him the way out. And I was unbelievably moved when he talked about this to me. I was so touched. Well, touched isn't the right word. It was something much deeper. Uh, it was like a generational connection. Um, and and he was quite frustrated when he came back from the rites of passage because he said nothing had changed. But about three weeks later, he went into his room for about four days and wouldn't come out and was quite hostile when you tried to talk to him. And and when he re-emerged, he said he decided to stop taking recreational narcotics and and other the prescribed drugs that he was sick of feeling numb he said not being sensitive and and he hasn't he's been clean ever since and then he stopped smoking he doesn't drink much well he doesn't drink at all actually um so that was a very powerful experience and made me really listen to some of the things that were going on in both our lives and I think in some ways we've come to another one of those moments. Um, Thomas struggled with a whole load of stuff uh, about life in general and the sort of things that other people seem to just sail through. Tom has found more difficult. And he decided that he wanted to be assessed as be uh, as whether he was on the spectrum of being being a neurodiverse person. Uh, it took twenty seven months. It was in the middle of lockdown. It took twenty seven months for him to have a diagnosis, and they've diagnosed him as neurodiverse, um, which explains an awful lot for him about his sensitivities and his anxieties and the way he engages with the world and that's that's hit him very hard um and he's been going through another night sea journey and so have i and so has his mum um i wrote this poem for him um not that long ago and it was based on an experience of in Texas, of all places, um, a friend of mine uh, took us to a place called Enchanted Rock, which is like a big pink domed rock in the Texas hill country. And you climb up it and then there's a, a, a little narrow opening and you can go right into the caves inside it and then you come out at, at an, another exit. I really didn't fancy it, but Tom decided that he would go with my friend um, and... They were gone for ages. And I was beginning to get worried. It's red hot in the hill country. And uh, I was beginning to get worried uh, as to where it had gone. Um, and and then, then my friend appeared and he said, oh, where's Tom? And I said, I don't know. He's not come out yet. But thankfully, after a few more minutes, he appeared. 
and he'd gone a different route, right down into the heart of the rock, uh, and re-emerged, and he looked like he'd been boiled like a potato. He was bright red. So I wrote this. Um, it's, it's called, You Stride On My Son Ahead Of Us Up Enchanted Rock. And this is a quote from William Boyd. Um, it was one of those moments that you recognised after the event as epiphanic, charged, numinous in some way. That's a quote from William Boyd, a, a book called Any Human Heart, which is a great novel. You stride on, my son, ahead of us up enchanted rock, not a bead of sweat, though Jim and I were lathered, and bearing life's baton, you entered the cave red dark. A steep, weathered pink dome, a stone skin with a pock, a tunnel system under its crust, entrance puckered, you stride on, my son, ahead of us up enchanted rock. Jim, my Texan brother, demanded of you a taking stock, handing on, handing you our era's torch, the light by granite splintered, and bearing life's baton, you entered the cave red dark. The narrow challenge of the entrance made me balk. I waited on the surface, a poor father, hardly fathered, as you stride on, my son, ahead of us up enchanted rock. Jim appeared after some time, face streaked with shock. You had left him behind, two boys in tow, a leader uncovered, and bearing life's baton, you entered the cave red dark. You emerged broiled, having broken childhood's lock. The baton we passed, you said, was heavier than expected. You stride on, my son, ahead of us, up enchanted rock, and bearing life's baton, you enter the cave red dark. And bearing life's baton, you enter the cave red dark. And in the last few couple of months, Tom's entered another cave red dark. Um, the diagnosis has hit him really hard. Um, and he's, he's seeking to find a way through it. And, and the only reason I talk about that personal thing of his and mine, uh, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, is I'm just shocked at how little support there is for mental health. I mean, it's quite extraordinary the difference, the contrast between him being diagnosed with diabetes and being diagnosed as neurodiverse. It's just astonishing. Basically, you have your assessment, you're told your, your situation, and then you get an hour, three weeks later, to say, how are you feeling about it? This is not to criticise the people who do the assessment. But there's just so little money put towards mental health and neurodivergence. I mean, it's just frightening, absolutely frightening. Um, and, and that poem is about the sort of numinous spiritual aspect of our, our cave red dark, our night sea journeys. But that has to be scaffolded with with support and and uh, mental health support. Um, and and my experience in this country is there's very little. You have to find it all for yourself. We had some friends who've got, uh, their son is older and he's he's diagnosed with neurodivergence. And, and the struggles they've had to support him and to get support for him is mind-blowing. Um, and 
that's part of of the sensitivity I've been feeling. Um, how alone you often feel. And I think about this must be the case for hundreds of people. That the, the safety net that, that sort of grew up in this country after the war is just falling apart at the moment. And I won't go into all the politics of it, but all I'm talking about is the experience of what it's like now. And it is really difficult. Um, and it takes me back. And, and I suppose there's a, there's, a, there's a sensitivity in this that makes me realise that we're all traversing some kind of night sea journey at times, some kind of uh, sensitivity that is breaking us open. So it, it took me back to when I was a, a, a teenager. My, my father died when I was 11 and my mum had a breakdown that I think was predominantly brought on by the fact that when he died, the doctors quite quickly put her on Valium and and antidepressants, um, and and that masked her grief. It made her numb in the way that I think Tom articulated being numb, um, and and wanting to to shake off that numbness. And she just went down and down. And again, there was so little support for her until she hit rock bottom and she tried to take her own life. Uh, one Sunday morning with sleeping tablets and I found her in her bedroom, shoving them down her throat. And my grandma, thankfully, was in the house with me and we scooped them out of her mouth and didn't know how many she'd taken, so kept her awake, called an ambulance. She was taken into hospital and had her stomach pumped and then she did it again not long after and the second time they admitted her to what was called Middlewood which was a mental hospital an old Victorian asylum scary place and um, it was really tough I used to visit her she was in there for three and a half months and I was 17 I think um, and my auntie and my uncle and my grandma looked after me and I looked after myself and again, it was really difficult, really, really difficult. Um, and they got her off the antidepressants and the Valium and they began to do what they called occupational therapy, which was just trying to get your life back on track again. And, and she was really well supported. And I, I, although I was very upset that she was in a mental hospital, they did a brilliant job and they rehabilitated it and she came out and never really looked back after that and and would say to me, you know, that was one of the most difficult experiences of her life, but she wasn't upset, too upset that she'd been through it because it opened her up to a whole new way of living that, that and made her a, a, a stronger person in some ways. So... That was a really powerful experience in my life. Um, again, of of what happens when when we're traumatized, when we're hurt, when we're damaged, and then we we're opened up to deep sensitivities, and we seem so ill-equipped to deal with them these days. And our society doesn't like the idea of them even. 
and people find it really hard. I mean, that's what this podcast is for in some ways, the Anxious Poets podcast, Anxiety, Vulnerability and Poetry, is I think there is a deep connection between those things. You're anxious, you become vulnerable, and then you are alerted to a, a deeper, wider, fuller world if you can access it, if you've got the right support. And, and that story about Tom on his rites of passage and the dream about my dad, well, yeah, he also... So my dad was born in 1910. He was 20 years older than my mother. <clears throat> and I, I've just discovered, uh, through through looking at ancestry.co.uk, which is, I found really a helpful way of looking at my past and finding out who my relatives were, who my ancestors are, if you like. And one of the things that I've just discovered, I always knew... My father was married before he met my mum. Um, he had been married. And I found who he was married to. And I knew that he'd had a daughter called Sheila. She came to my dad's funeral. I wasn't at my dad's funeral because when he died, I was away with my grandma and they decided, because I was 11, to not bring me home for the funeral. And there's, in many ways, I wish they had. I think the not marking of his passing, his death, was very confusing for me. And I know all the reasons why they don't want to take kids to funerals, but anyway. And they did it for all the right reasons, I'm quite sure. But it didn't give me that rite of passage that I needed. Um, anyway, he, he yeah, so he was married, he, I think he got... I don't know when he, when I've got it written down, but I can't remember when he married this woman. And they had a daughter, I think it says she was born in 1940, uh, called Sheila. And she came to my dad's funeral, and that was the last time my mum saw her. And I'd, I don't know why I never really went to look for her, but I've just discovered now that she died in 2007. God rest her. And I, that's affected me quite deeply. I would like to find out more about her family and who she was. Um, but my dad uh, split up from her mum in quite acrimonious circumstances, which were quite traumatic for him. And I presume her. I don't know. And he also was sunk he, he fought right through the Second World War. He was in, in the Navy. Um, I'm sure I've mentioned this before. Um, I'm just picking up a book that I found about uh, the ship that he was sunk on. Um, there was a, a, a naval cameraman on the ship. It was called the HMS Hermes. It was a First World War battleship converted with wooden decks into an aircraft carrier with biplanes on it um, and my dad was assigned to it and it sailed out to, to Sri Lanka, what was called Salon then and they were in the harbour in Kandy and they heard that there was a Japanese fleet nearby so the powers that be decided to ship, get all the ships out of the harbour because they didn't want another Pearl Harbour so my dad's ship was sent out into the ocean 
without the planes on it for some reason. I don't quite understand why. And um, unfortunately, Japanese dive bombers picked them up and dive bombed the plane. And the, the, the way the bombs are designed is to go through the wooden deck and then explode below decks. And that's what happened. And the whole ship just went up. And there was a naval photographer on the ship who took photographs as the ship was sinking, got into a, a life raft and was rescued, handed in his camera and his, the films to the, the MOD. And then years later, his, his son was sent, they were declassified, was sent these photographs. And the front of the book, it's called The Hermes Adventure, is, is the listing deck of the ship with all sailors on it and life rafts. And there's lots of photographs all the way through of the ship sinking. Oh, sorry, that was a book dropping. Um, yeah, so there's photographs all the way through this book of the ship sinking that he took. And the, this son of the naval photographer went and found survivors from the, uh, from the, the, the Hermes uh, and interviewed as many people as he could. He was called Rex Morgan. Um, this was in 1985. This was after my dad died. Um, and, and I found this entry from um, um, a guy called D. Perrin, Hermes survivor. The next incident I recall is going into the bathroom and hearing E.R.A. Ivor Taff Davis saying, Is that you, Doug? He was blinded and black with fuel oil. I'm happy to say he recovered his sight later. Tommy Scott, that's my dad, and I went round the hospital beds and tried to find men we knew. There was Sub-Lieutenant E. Bond. He had been badly wounded in the legs and said he was machine-gunned while in the water. There was Cyril Ford, who was in a bad state of shock, and there was Harvey. There was Smith from Doncaster. He was badly burned and died later that night, and row upon row of injured whom we couldn't recognise for injuries or bandaging. Tom and I shared our blankets that night, sleeping outside along the companionway, and I must confess I had little sleep. To begin with, the ship was not darkened, and we worried that the Japanese would take advantage of the fact. And there were also quite a number of men who died and had to be brought along the companionway to be buried over the stern of the ship. Because we couldn't sleep, we smoked and talked of men we knew and wondered who had survived. Through a fanlight, we watched the doctors in the operating theatres fighting hour after hour to save men's lives. It was wonderful to watch these doctors and nurses. The task was tremendous. Wow. It was like, when I first read that, the, the, the traumatised life of my dad reaching out from the page and touching me. And I realised how much my dad must have been through <clears throat> to to see all your friends shot up like that, to hear bodies being tipped over. They were picked up eight hours later by a hospital ship called the Vita. Um, and it, they hadn't been able to get lifeboats off the ship, but they got light rafts and they put the wounded in the rafts. They were all covered in oil. Um, my dad had been in the engine room, hadn't heard the abandoned ship because there wasn't one because all the officers had been killed immediately and um, and managed to get out, but he burnt his hands. He always had scars on his hands. And uh, 
they put the wounded in the life rafts and there were sharks. I mean, just unbelievable trauma. Uh, and then, and it said they smoked. Well, my dad smoked till he died. And he died when he was 63. Um, and that, all that trauma on that deeply sensitive part of him that we all carried, but he was a real sensitive soul, my dad. Um, it, 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 it was hard. It was hard for him. He broke his back twice in the service. He was in the Navy for 30 years, not, not through fighting, but just accidents. Um, it, you know, he, he saw so much and experienced, and he smoked a lot, 60 a day. And he liked to drink. He could drink a bottle of gin, just drank gin and water. Um, in The Cruel Sea by Nicholas Montserrat, there's a great quote um, where it's all about, the, my dad loved it because it was about the war he experienced. And there's a bit where they've had to sail over British, soldiers, British sailors in the water to try and catch a U-boat. And, and they're talking about it after and the, the executive officer says to the captain, well, how do we deal with this? What do we do with this? And he says, well, uh, that we will deal with later, but 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 for the time being, there's gin. <laughs> um, so this, this podcast is really about the way we experience the, the traumas and difficulties of our lives and, and how we face them and how we uh, walk with a limp through them. You know, there's that great story from the, from the Hebrew scripture about Jacob wrestling all night with an angel. And he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And he fights and he fights with this angel all night and it dislocates his hip. And it said, from that day forward, he became known as Israel rather than Jacob, the father of many, many people. <clears throat> and, but that he always walked with a limp. Um, I think that's what I'm trying to talk about is that way you have to wrestle with the really tough, dark, shadowy stuff of your life. Um, until it blesses you. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. I think that's what Tom's dream on his initiation uh, night was about. That my dad was showing them, him the way out of that engine room, that somehow there's an ancestral memory in him, um, in the collective unconscious, something emerging in him that he's inherited through me from my dad. I don't know how this stuff works, that all sounds very hocus pocus, but there's something in it, I'm, I'm certain of that. And and I think the the journey that Tom is going through at the moment and that we're helping him with is again that that he will find the way through he will find the way out um but it's not easy and i want to read a piece to you now um we've been been doing a couple of where well, we've done one gig 
of the Sheffield poems. I, I've found someone to publish the Sheffield poems. We're in the process of doing that now. And um, which I'm really pleased about. And um, we've, we've, me and Andy, the guy that did the music to the poems, um, we've been doing a second album. We've gone out and done a gig in a local cafe in Netheredge, which sold out, which was fantastic, and we really enjoyed it. And then Wilma's doing a bit of singing with us, my wife. Um, we've now got a double bass player. We're doing a gig over in another part of Sheffield. And we're going to just keep going around the city and and doing readings and music and everything. And this poem goes down really well, and it, and it fits with the theme of of what I'm talking about here. It's called Speaking to Steelworkers About Rites of Passage. Come and talk to my men's group about male rites of passage, the vicar of Brinsworth asked me. Come next Thursday night. I'd read all the books, Arnold von Gennep, Joseph Campbell, Rites and Symbols of Initiation by the great Mercia Eliard. I expected four or five souls in the front room of the vicarage, tea, biscuits and an earnest conversation about manliness. Instead, I was ushered into the Phoenix Social Club to speak to 70 ex-steelworkers following a pie and peas supper. What the hell does a man who mainly writes poetry say about masculinity and rites of passage to men like these? I dredged my taken-off-guard soul for an entry point that wouldn't come off as bullshit as egg-sucking for grannies. What came up in the cage as the winding gear of my mind began to revolve was Ashington, a place that once boasted it was the biggest pit village in the world, a Geordie coalfield that birthed my dad along with Bobby and Jackie Charlton. I spoke of my father. He didn't want to go down the pits, so he conducted on the buses and then joined the Navy shoveling the miners' coal into the engines of ships, fighting through a world war and rising through the ranks. He became a man by leaving home, by sailing to Ceylon, by being sunk by dive bombers, by surviving and fighting on. I became a man too soon because he died too young, and I told them about that, how I lost him before I was cast. I watched hard faces soften at the revelation of my losses. They nodded and pints were raised. They showed me the photographs on the walls of the huge crucibles of molten steel. We did that. We went through those factory doors and we worked those shifts. And we spent the rest of the night voicing what wrought us. Why my dad came to Sheffield and made rolling mills. Why I am here in this city forging words from steel. How their apprenticeships hallmark their lives for good. Old men's faces growing younger in the furnace light. Ready to talk of strikes and shop stewards. Pickets and the fight for dignity. Of the redundancy of their labour. And this was how we spoke that night of rites of passage. And this was how we spoke that night of rites of passage. Wow. That uh, that was a, <laughs> a profound experience for me. I mean, it, it, it's all true. The, the vicar asked me to come because uh, he'd heard that I was engaged with men's work and things like that. And I really did. I thought, I said, yeah, of course I'll come. Yeah, thinking it would be a little group in the vicarage. And it... 
it was like four days before and he rang me and he said, yeah, yeah, we've got all the pie and pea supper booked and how many men I said? And he said, 70. Oh my goodness. And um, and yes, yeah, mainly ex-steel workers. And it was so challenging. I was thinking, what do I say to these men? But I talked about my losses. I talked about my dad. And and it's coming to me as I speak about all of this in, in this podcast. What's so hard isn't just the experiences that we have, the traumas that my dad had, the, the diagnosis that Thomas had, the breakdown that I've had. What's difficult is we're so poor at scaffolding these experiences there's so little provision either mental health uh wise you know uh medically but also spiritually we're not good we're really not good at, at helping people move through each of these phases and 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 night sea journeys we I feel like we're so poor these days at those things. I don't quite know why it is, but one of the things that I have discovered is that the poetic imagination is is part of what really helps. And using that metaphorical imagination, uh, mythological imagination, to, to craft and listen to stories, to build containers through which we can travel in order to contain our experiences and let them transform us. That's what what we should be about. And with that in mind, and coming up to Easter, uh, within the Christian tradition, um, there are lots of stories, lots of narratives, just as there are in the Jewish tradition, in the Muslim tradition, uh, we are the inheritors of incredible stories um, that give us some idea of what that scaffolding should feel like or, or look like, give us hints and um, ways through these experiences. And and I was thinking when I was writing The Night Sea Journey um, about the the experience of Thomas and there's a nice synchronicity there with Tom my son and my dad was called Tom I'm bookended by Tom's uh, Thomas in the uh, New Testament after Jesus is risen from the dead the first time Jesus appears in the story to to the disciples in the upper room thomas isn't there for some reason i always wondered what the reason was he wasn't there thomas is also a twin um which they're keen to tell us in the story um and so he 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 refuses to believe he says well i unless i see the nail marks and put my fingers where they were i don't believe it so jesus appears again and he's there this time and he says here stick your hand in there where the the spear pierced my side put your hand in the wounds and it's always struck me that part of the mythical imagination in that story is that although whatever it means that jesus is risen from the dead he's not unwounded 
all the things that have happened to him are visible in his body. So this is Thomas wanted to see nail marks. And I start with a quote from uh, a, a fantastic book and film called Call Me By Your Name. Uh, I don't envy the pain, but I envy you the pain. And that's a, a father talking to his son. I don't envy the pain. I wouldn't want it. But I envy you the pain because I know that the pain is taking you somewhere. That's my prayer for all of us who have children that suffer. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Thomas wanted to see nail marks. It was cold in that room and having to disrobe in front of them all made it doubly cold. I couldn't feel the hand probing or the finger in the holes. It was actually quite numb. It had been a week since the last time. I had walked the streets, sleeping in doorways, watching the world continue. I so wanted to bring peace to all those speckled souls feeding off the leftover of other people's lives. And then I entered that cynical again, their hungry eyes all on me and his searching digits. All I had to offer them was the fleeting amnesty of one who has gone through the firestorm of Gehenna. It was truly a death I still bled, sporadically, especially from my side, and he, named the twin, doubted me. What he momentarily grasped when he prodded my lesions was here was a way of living again. Thomas, gestated with another, a womb partner, always simpatico with his twin presence in the world, this man who never faced the place of the lonely skull, felt my born-through-death somatics. I told him the truth. He was lucky to see this bodily proof, but did any of them really get it? I remained for a while, but they quickly lost sight of the intimation in my wounded palms and souls. I told them on three occasions I would be buried like a seed in the de dark, death's dark earth, but then I would spring into life again. The thing they missed, and this is why I drifted away in the end, and wandered off down to the fishermen's docks. The thing they missed is that this was not a one-off. I learned to rise by dying over and over again. The thing they missed is that this was not a one-off. I learned to rise by dying over and over again. I I had this just this sense that that the reason Jesus sort of disappears out of the story is because they just didn't get it. They didn't get what he was trying to say to them. Um, this is not a theological thought. It's just a poetic thought that somehow those wounds. What he was saying to them was, you won't. You won't get through life unless you accept that you're going to get hurt and you're going to get wounded and that you find a way through it and you learn that by dying and dying and somehow that experience blesses you in the end. And I'm not saying that as some justification for suffering. 
And I'm not saying it from a religious perspective. It's more from a poetic perspective. Um, it's how our mental health, our physical health, our or lack of those things, our spiritual life, our psychological life, our sociological life is all woven into one story. And that there's there's a great song that Wilma sang at the gig that we did by Richard Hawley, um, the Sheffield musician, um, called As the Dawn Breaks. In this morning's search for meaning, I hear a songbird's melody and I, th I hear it singing and it's singing just for me. And he talks about looking, I, I always imagine one of those sloping uh, terraced hills of Sheffield, lots of terraced houses. And he says the slates are darked by rain. And in this morning's search for meaning, I hear a songbird's melody and it's singing just for me. There's something really powerful about those numinous moments where you find in this morning search for meaning, the songbird is singing just for you. And I suppose what this podcast is, is an encouragement to look for that meaning, to look for the songbird singing just for you. That songbird might be a poet, it might be a writer, it might be your friend, it might be your enemy. It might be a film, a television series that you binge watch. It might be, uh, and this is what I want to finish on really, one of the most uh, reliable places to look for this stuff is um, the natural world which is all around us all the time. Even if you live in the middle of a city, there will be somewhere where the natural world is, uh, is, is, is available, um, is breaking through, is looking for you, um, is, is trying to speak to you. Um, and it's really worth looking for. And here are two places where I've found it, two pieces of writing that I want to share with you. Uh, it's in a book called I Am Coyote, Readings for the Wild, um, given to me by an estranged friend who I miss deeply. This is from Jack London, who was quite a strange bloke, um, wrote White Fang and the Call of the Wild, um, and, and wrote about poverty in London. Um, but the wilderness, certainly for him, well, listen, uh, and bear in mind that as I'm speaking this, I can't see out the window because it's covered in snow. We're having a massive snowfall at the moment in March, which was meant to be spring. So the world outside is very quiet. And this is called The White Silence by Jack London. The afternoon wore on and with the awe born of the white silence, the voiceless travellers bent to their work. Nature has many tricks wherewith she convinces us of our affinity the ceaseless flow of the tides, the fury of the storm, the shock of the earthquake, the long roll of heaven's artillery. But the most tremendous, the most stupefying of all, is the passive phase of the white silence. All movement ceases, the sky clears, the heavens are as brass, 
the slightest whisper seems sacrilege, and humans become timid, affrighted at the sound of their own voice. Soul speck of life journeying across the ghostly wastes of a dead world, we tremble at our audacity. Realise that we are maggots, not life, nothing more. Strange thoughts arise unsummoned, and the mystery of all things strives for utterance. And the fear of death, of God, of the universe comes over us. The hope of resurrection and the life, the yearning for immortality, the vain striving of the imprisoned essence. It is then, if ever, we walk alone with God. What a piece of writing. It is then, if ever, we walk alone with God in the white wilderness. That's, I think, part of the scaffolding, is being able to face the natural world, to to go into its unvarnished reality um, and, and accept it and accept ourselves and all that has happened to us and all our woundedness, all our trauma. Um, to walk out into that, which I might do in a minute uh, when I've done this podcast with the dog. Uh, animals are part of that scaffolding as well, I think. Um, the last, uh, from the same book that my friend gave to me, it's from Henry David Thoreau, from a book called Walden, Life in the Woods, written in 1854. It's an American classic. He chose to go out and live away from what he then thought was this sort of technocracy of, of life, the, the bustling city, uh, and to live alone in the woods and self-sufficient. Um, God knows what it'd have made of what we live like now. Um, but it's a real classic. It's a beautiful piece of writing. And again, uh, you'll hear you'll hear what I'm talking about. We must learn to reawaken and keep ourselves awake not by mechanical aids, but by an infinite expectation of the dawn, which does not forsake us in our soundest sleep. I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of human beings to elevate their lives by a conscious endeavour. It's something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue, and so to make few objects beautiful. But it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do, to affect the quality of the day. That is the highest of arts. Every one of us is tasked to make our life, even in its details, worthy of the contemplation of our most elevated and critical hour. If we refused or rather used up such paltry information as we get, the oracles would distinctly inform us how this might be done. So he's saying that we need to be awake through an infinite expectation of the dawn, which does not forsake us even in our soundest sleep. So something in us, the infinite expectation of dawn, is always going on inside us. Even when life seems so awful and difficult, which in the last couple of months it has for us at times, there is this infinite expectation of dawn, like in Richard Hawley's song, I hear a songbird's melody and it's singing just for me. And we're all tasked, even in life's details, to make something that's worthy of our most elevated and critical hour. In other words, 
I, in a poem about Sheffield, I said, we're grinders of the ordinary, turners of the, the shitty into the good. And, and, and I think that's, that's what he's saying, that we use our mythical stories, our imagination, our poetic imagination, uh, that we create a health service for each other that helps us through those, those moments. My friend's just lost his dad today. And, and I'm thinking how, what can we do to help him traverse the path of grief? That's what he's on about here. If we refused or rather used up such paltry information as we get, the information of our lives, the oracles would distinctly inform us how it might be done. I think for me, the oracles are poems, poets, art, good television, good films, just, just looking for stories that inform how to deal with that brokenness. And this, as my poem says, this for this hour has been how we spoke with each other about rites of passage. This is how we speak with each other about rites of passage. So go well. I'm sorry it's been a while since I did the last one. I hope this one's worth waiting for. So go well. Um, if you have any thoughts or reactions, um, you can always email me. I'll put it on the blurb, the email. Um, you can leave comments on wherever you get your podcast from. You can click the like button if you wanted to. That would be great. Because if you like it and you like it, other people will notice it. Oh, you know how all that works. I don't really know. But um, it feels ridiculously like self-promotion. But I would like people to listen Um if they can, and, and have a conversation in some way with what I'm saying. Um, so go well. If you're doing some kind of Lent, good luck with that. Happy Easter, if that means anything to you. Um, we're coming towards the spring solstice. We're coming towards the flowering and opening up of the earth. So all of that is good stuff. And um, so I'm the Anxious Poet, I'm Adrian Scott, and I'll speak to you next time. Lots of love. Bye. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast.